Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice hey, everybody, welcome to Book Club. It's all about this right here, All God's Children. Dr. Terrence Lester joining us. My brother, it is good to see you. You've been busy. The book's been coming out. You've been all over the place. I've been checking it out. And uh, congratulations. First of all, this is pretty hot off the press, man. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited about being here tonight uh, just to hang out with you and have an in-depth discussion about it. Yeah, man. And you... Uh, so I, I always say, I don't assume everybody did their homework. Usually some folks are tuning in and I don't have the book yet, but I sure did mine. And I got all the highlights and marks to prove it. Um, but, you know, for folks that haven't had a chance to read it yet, I think just a, a broad sweep, you're really personal when you write. You you uh, tell a lot of your own story and write out of that space. Um, but, you know, tell us a little bit. Uh, you've written other books, but this one is... is uh, really special. And you kind of go into a little bit of your history and your passion. Uh, so give people a little sense of uh, Dr. Terrence for folks that haven't read it, man. Yeah. Oh, by sure. the way, well, uh, congrats <laughs> on the doctor too, right? That's new. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, man, I, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I've uh, been here majority of my life. Uh, I have a family uh, my wife and my two kids, uh, we're pretty, pretty close knit. And uh, in 2013, I founded, uh, co-founded an organization called Love Beyond Walls uh, with my wife. And basically that organization advocates for those who are unhoused uh, in the city of Atlanta, but also across the country. And so we've been doing the work of narrative justice, reframing what it means to include our unhoused neighbors into uh, the beloved community. And that, uh, so you've got the, the the ministry you've been doing and you write quite a bit about that. And you've also got the Dignity Museum. That was pretty, uh, that was yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, man. Tell people a little bit yeah. more about that. Yeah. So uh, what happened was we were starting to attract a lot of uh, Christians uh, to our organizations because uh, Christians like to do charitable work, right? Um, and so we would have a lot of Christians come to our organization. And I started to see that a lot of people who were showing up was causing harm to those who were impoverished and unhoused, um, specifically because there was, a, as our, our mutual friend Lisa says, uh, there was a narrative gap, right? Mm. There was no real uh, understanding as to how people arrive into the plight. And so I, was, I started to see like this disconnect between service and actually knowing uh, the history and centering the voices of those who are unhoused. So we launched a museum called the Dignity Museum that centers the stories of those who are unhoused. It's the first museum in the United States that represents this subject. And so we do uh, a lot of education around homelessness, uh, debunking myths, uh, centering narratives, 
highlighting mm-hmm. and spotlighting those who have the courage uh, to survive poverty or um, wrestle through the issues of uh, homelessness in this in this country. And um, it's been revolutionary in that uh, we get a chance to really deconstruct false narratives and harmful narratives that have been embedded uh, into people's belief systems or mm. their core beliefs about those who live on the streets. You know, and I, you and you did it in a uh, very deliberately in a storage container, right? Uh, uh, that, yeah. And I, you know, when I when I first read that, I thought of our friends down at the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida, migrant farm workers that have been, you know, friends and uh, like we we've been teaming up with them for fifteen or twenty years. Um, but they they had folks that were um, uh, forcibly held in a U-Haul, like and and so they had a modern day slavery museum, uh, and they did it in the back of a U-Haul to you know kind of make that connection, and it was really powerful. But it made me think of uh, of you know the space that you're created to, to try to like uh, expose people to the to, to bring it close to home, right? To move people's hearts and the stories and the proximity that you write about. It's all about that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge metaphor uh, with a shipping container. Um, You know, every shipping container is transient. Right. It moves around from place to place. Every shipping container uh, carries things of substance and value. Um, And every shipping container has a story of origin. And it's kind of like metaphorically paralleling what it means to be unhoused. If you're unhoused, uh, sometimes you're transient. Uh, If you're unhoused. Uh, it does not mean that you don't have a story of origin because every single person has a story. Nobody mm-hmm. was born and said, hey, sign me up uh, to not have an address. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most importantly, every single shipping container ha- carries things of substance and worth. And it's it's a powerful message that every single person, whether they have an address or not, has some type of uh, inherent worth and value on the inside of us. And to actually go and... Uh, explore the content you actually have to go inside of the museum and it it's a huge message to our guests that uh, sometimes you have to pause and literally know people in the depths of who a person is versus judging them uh based upon what you see mm, mm. so we're going we're going to get into it we're going to get into the book in just a minute yeah. and and uh and you, you know i want to in just a second i want to talk about the connection between uh, being unhoused and 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 what you you know you this parallel that you mean you you make to being black in America. But before we get to that, um, you, you know, as you're writing about your own story and how you grew this passion for unhoused people, but also around uh, racial justice and the intersection of all these different issues. Um, you talk about a few of the milestones for you that shaped you, and one of those um, was with your grandfather um, as you're fixing your car. And uh, I don't want to spoil it for folks. You really need to read the whole thing, but I, I don't know if you wanted to say a little <laughs> bit more about why that moment was so important. And um, it, it feels like it's not the only one, but it's one of those where, where things really landed for you and you, you started seeing things with a new, a, a new fire in your bones. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I had gone over to my grandfather's house and um, he was a mechanic by trade and I reached out to him to help me repair my car. And so I pull up uh, to his house and me, I'm thinking that he's going to do the work for me. 
And just, just like a grandfather does, uh, he tells me to go over to the tube box and uh, grab specific tools. And literally, I get into uh, the work of, of repairing a car, and I felt that it was too hard. And I made this statement, you know, I can't do it. And that just like transitioned the entire car into a classroom. And he talked to me about, um, you know, his experiences with the KKK and being hospitalized because he was brutally attacked. Uh, he talked to me about how his grandparents and his grandparents, uh, grandparents could not read because they were not allowed to. Uh, he talked to me about uh, some of the specifics about his struggles and upbringings. My grandfather is still alive to this day and very much cognizant, you know, mm. um, and sharp. Um, and he, in that moment, became like a living historical epistle because I had not been taught uh, some of the things that he was communicating to me uh, in my K through 12 experience. And so for that, um, those types of insights gave me a deeper understanding of like, uh, the legacy and the heritage that I, I was emerging from and the struggle that Black people had gone through. And it inspired me to build uh, my own independent library outside of school where I got a chance to explore the narratives of writers and scholars uh, who could communicate to me in which uh, wasn't being communicated in history classes in school. And so it's very special to me uh, because he taught me about Emmett Till, you know, he taught me about convent leasing. Uh, he taught me about uh, taught me about black codes. Uh, he taught me about uh, Jim Crowism. Uh, he taught me about the even the stores uh, that many people get a chance to frequent to this day that he was not able to go uh, to uh, when he was my age at that moment. And so. Like for me, it was it was just like a really important moment mm. for me to understand the depths of who I was as a person uh, coming from a grandparent who had lived through uh, this type of struggle. Mm. So powerful. And, and so you, you're going to be careful not to say I can't do something anymore. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Adds a new meaning to the yes, we can. You kind of make that uh, that parallel too. that. Uh, there yeah. Was more going on than just a political campaign with Barack Obama and, and this idea that, you know, we can we can do something, make change happen. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think it, it's also powerful that our own stories, we're all figuring it out. You know, Lisa Sharon Harper, who's a dear friend, partner, been on the board of RLC for years. And uh, and she talks a lot about her own story. And, you know, I met I don't know if you've met her mom, but she writes about her in her you know book, Fortune and her mom was an organizer with, you know, Stokely Carmichael and all these like folks in Philly wow. and um, seeing those roots. And I, while I'm down here in Tennessee, it's, it's kind of got, I've been texting Lisa saying, I'm trying to dig some of my own history. So my mom took me up to the <laughs> mountains where her grandmother, my, my grandmother was born. Her grandmother like lived in this old, um, uh, like it's still a log cabin up in the hills, but I think it's a reminder for all of us to, um, dig a little bit, right? Know know our own story and uh, and, and grieve the parts that that we need to grieve. You know, I, I wasn't sure if my family uh, owned enslaved people or not, so I'm like, I'm, they were apparently really poor in the mountains. So we're, it's, you know, I'm still figuring all that out. But I think, um, you know, you 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 write out of that context with your your own family and your own experience. And this is where I want to, you know, hear a little bit more about this intersection, right? Because you talk about 
um, how these are not disconnected, like caring about unhoused people and caring about racial justice. And especially as you as an African-American man in America, like um, they're they're you even have a parallel like on page 15 where you kind of show how these things um, have similar uh, similar. Uh, shapes when it comes to the oppression, but also the the fight for freedom and liberation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Intersectionality is, um, it's, it's one of those concepts that uh, is important to, to understand like um, the overlapping of the different social identities um, uh, that relates to social structures uh, of, of racism and oppression. Uh, intersectionality kind of like merges uh, many identity markers, including like race, class, gender, sexual orientation, age, uh, ethnicity, gender, uh, disability. And OK, so like, for example, uh, a black person who is unhoused might uh, experience discrimination, not only for their housing status, but also because they are black. Right. Um, another layer of that could be uh, you could be black and unhoused. Right. And also um, uh, live with a disability. That's an entire entirely different uh, identity. And one of the reasons why I uh, like use this chart within the book is to show the intersection of um, the parallels that one may experience if they're unhoused, uh, you know, being criminalized for being in public space, uh, being feared because you're unhoused, uh, having policies written against you uh, because you're unhoused, uh, you know, is parallel with the experience of being black. And there could be some intersection in, in between the two. You know, I've been in uh, public spaces where I was feared because I was 6'2 and I was a black man. You know, uh, you know, there are many times where uh, there's a criminal lens of black and brown people because, you know, um, of the historical imagery uh, that has communicated this idea to be black is to be uh, uh, identified as criminal, you know, uh, to be black also sometimes means to be, uh, you know, feared or uh, to be excluded. And so, like, I really wrestle with the tensions between the, uh, the intersections of the two, mainly shame because, you know, sociologists uh, suggest that there are two mass homelessness eras uh, in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. The one that happens during the Great Depression and the one that happens uh, in the 70s and 80s underneath the Reagan administration. I argue, in my scholarly opinion, that there is actually three uh, mm -hmm. mass homelessness eras. And the first one begins when Africans were actually forced onto slave ships mm -hmm. and made uh, to leave their land when indigenous folks uh, had their land stolen from them and that caused uh, displacement. So I start with that framework and then I do the progression of it. Right. And uh, help us to like really understand that uh, during the 1930s, during the Great Depression, when uh, most generally uh, use this framework, as the first mass homelessness era, black people were being redlined. Yeah. This is when redlining started, you know, in the 1930s. My grandmother is 91 years old and still remembers uh, parts of her family not able to occupy certain parts of cities when they were trying to get access to housing. So you have housing uh, discrimination. 
You have, uh, you know, employment discrimination. Uh, the GI Bill passes in 1944. And you know who was discriminated against? Black mm -hmm. soldiers uh, weren't mm -hmm. given access to adequate housing. Then you go to, through the civil rights era. And it's no wonder, Shane, that in 2023, Black people make up 13% of the population, but account for 50% of all of those who are unhoused in the whole mm -hmm. United States of America. So when I look at the intersection of race and class, it's very important to me because doing the work of being proximate to the unhoused population has given me a lens to understand how race has actually uh, impacted the housing status of many people who are black and brown. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, and when we talk about, um, you know, the, the, the connection between racial reconciliation um, and racial justice, that th this is a really important connection that you make in the book. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I was just thinking like, um, when when we think about systemic injustice or the ways that, you know, hundreds of years of racism still leaves a residue. I mean, we can see it in almost every aspect yeah. of our society. But the wild thing is now with all the social media, you know, you see this house, right, that had been <laughs> appraised, right, when it was all white uh, pictures on the walls and then, you know, like an African-American family <laughs> comes and it gets, uh, it's, it's uh, worth a whole lot less. Or I was thinking of the Freakonomic studies where, um, uh, you know, they had um, exact resumes that were given to employers. Did you see that where like the name on one, yes. a white sounding name, you know, like uh, it was like Shannon and Shaniqua or uh, Matthew and Mohammed or whatever, you know, and over and over the white sounding name gets the job, even though the resumes are identical, you know, but you know, this is personal too. Like I, I was, you know, you make this real clear in your book that sometimes we think about these systems and structures and the redlining and um, uh, the, the uh, income like discrepancies, the fact that white folks get uh, uh, str stronger uh, or less penalties for the same crime as African American, all that stuff. But then you, you make it so personal when you, you know, you talk about when you're walking across the country and you had to use the restroom. Oh yeah. And I was thinking about this, man. Yeah. I told my family in the car, when we went up to visit that cabin way up in the mountains, my stepdad had to go to the bathroom. So we pulled off at a church. He said, I'll just pull off the church. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> that, that story that you tell I me, mean, it's actually not funny at all, but you, you tell two, stories of having to go to the restroom in this one church they open the door a little bit and they're like nope sorry you can't use our bathroom uh but i mean this, this yeah is, that was hurtful man. yeah yeah it's, it was it's, hurtful it's i mean real. i uh in 2016 i i talked to my family and the, my board and at our center in, at love beyond walls we have a lot of people who literally walk you know yeah. Uh, tires are comparable to shoes to people who are unhoused, right? Um, uh, they walk for different resources to to access showers, to access sanitation, uh, to use technology because there's a digital divide, um, to get access to water, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to be in a space where they don't feel like their existence is threatening anybody around them, right? And so I asked my family and my board if I could walk across the country uh, to raise awareness to uh, the plight of uh, poverty and homelessness. And so I started out from the SCLC building uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, partnered with Dr. Steele and uh, Dr. Lafayette. And it took me two months to complete this journey. I walked through South Carolina, uh, you know, the northern parts of Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, 
And time and time again, I experienced tons and tons of, you know, racial discrimination just for simply walking. I literally had to have a press release and videos on my cell phone because people were calling the police on me because I was walking with the walking stick. Mm. I remember there were times when I would literally, I had a teams with me. I would go like this one instance to a church. I knocked on the door um, in South Carolina and I asked if I could use a restroom. People were walking in and out of the church and the pastor and like an executive assistant looks at me through the door and says, we can't help you. I showed them the documents. I even had a Bible with me. <laughs> I said, I'm a man of faith. This is what I'm doing uh, to advocate on behalf of those who are unhoused. They turned me away. And I'll never forget um, walking off and the, the emotions that I, I felt. Here it is. I am advocating on behalf of someone that Jesus identified right. with, but also being turned away. And I'll never forget that uh, I pulled out this quote that ML King had written. He says, hate can't drive out hate. Darkness can't drive out darkness. You know, only love can do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I had this moment where I had to pause and tap into love mm. uh, to understand that it was love that was causing me to stay committed to this mission, even though some of the people who were discriminating against me in those communities were also impoverished, mm. right? That's deep because That's deep. I'm also walking on behalf of those who had that racial hatred in their hearts that was discriminating uh, against me because you know, I was staying close to what uh, King was arguing is that love can drive out love, but it was very personal. And yeah. it's a burden that I carry every single day as a black man. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you, as you were sharing that, you, you know, I, I thought also of uh, remembering a story Brian Stevenson told when he showed up to court, Brian Stevenson, you know, the founder of Equal Justice Initiative for folks, you know, listening in that don't know, he's a powerful lawyer. We went to the same school, Eastern University. He's been a friend, a part of RLC. But one of the stories he tells is uh, when he showed up to court, right? And um, the judge, uh, when he comes in the courtroom, saw him as an African-American man and said, sorry, you're not allowed in the courtroom yet. It's just for counsel only. And, uh, uh, you know, assuming he was not a lawyer. <laughs> And and Brian said, the irony is not only was I a lawyer, but my client was a young white man that I was, uh, you know, arguing and defending. Wow. Um, and he's got other stories that are very personal when he was sitting in his car thinking through a case and the police come up and, you know, I mean, over and over, I mean, almost everybody that's. Uh, not white in America, especially African-American folks, I think have those stories and you talk about, you know, how personal this is. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about the different kinds of bias, right? So the overt bias, there's overt racism, then there's this kind of implicit bias that we sometimes don't notice, maybe like the, the, the guy in that courtroom. Um, but then you use a, you, you use this phrase in an uh, inattentional blindness and, um, you talk about this idea, and I wanted you to unpack that a little bit because this is probably a a new idea for um, some folks. But it was a it's an idea that you're building on from a couple other sociologists, right? But in inattentional blindness. Yeah, yeah. So this term, uh, inattentional blindness, and you know, 
I would even suggest that it's inattentional ignorance. It's coined by two uh, psychologists, uh, Arian Mack and Irvin Rock, um, who published, uh, you know, this study by the, the same name as the actual coin phrase. So they perform all of these experiments to understand how one person or a group of people could be proximate to something without paying full attention to it, like thus rendering, you know, oneself um, either ignorant or blind to it. Right. Uh, and the essence of this, this study and what they try to underscore is that, you know, it hurts everyone involved, you know, and goes against uh, this core aspect of community when we are, you know, blind, blind to our neighbors who may be around us or proximate to us. Um, it's it's hurtful and harmful when we, you know, ignore the, the person who is unhoused. It's hurtful and harmful when we ignore the sufferings of those who are black and brown, when they uh, when we are like systemically oppressed uh, by public policies and, and different things that harm and disrupt our communities. It's harmful when we try to ignore uh, the history of, of, of black people, right? By banning of the books. It's, it's, it's almost like intentionally putting on uh, the blinders uh, to render oneself um, in this is in this narrow sightedness where you don't pay attention to anything or anyone else around you. And to me, Shane, that does a lot of different things. You know, it upholds um, injustice. It upholds mm. white supremacy. It keeps people ignorant. Right. Um, and on top of that, it it disadvantages people from truly loving them, their neighbor, as Jesus said, that you're supposed to love mm. your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, how can you love a neighbor that you're blind to? Mm. How can you love someone that you're not uh, being proximate to. And I'm not even talking about just geographical proximity. I'm talking about cognitive proximity because there has to be this cognition awareness uh, that you have to really fully pay attention to those who are around you. Um, and, you know, I think this, this is the type of blindness that keeps us, uh, you know, from seeing our neighbors in the same ways that we want to be seen. Yeah, I think of that King quote, right? Uh, Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. (laughs) Help us, Lord. Yeah, it's a a good one. Uh, Hey, listen, if y'all are just tuning in, uh, we're we're like monitoring the different platforms. We're all over the place. I think we're live on Facebook and Twitter and uh, all kinds of stuff, YouTube. So if you put any questions in the chat, a few of you are on Zoom too, you can throw those there. We'll try to get to a couple of them. but this, uh, I want to read an excerpt, um, uh, Terrence, of, of when you talk about the, the difference between um, racial justice and racial reconciliation. You say there are two distinct uh, conversations that many white Christians conflate into one. The leap straight to racial reconciliation leaves out how a white supremacist system created the oppressive structures that disadvantage many people of color today. And just as an enslaved army cannot forgive its way out of captivity, I'm going to read that one more time, y'all. Just as an enslaved army cannot forgive its way out of captivity, a culturally oppressed people cannot forgive its way out of oppression. It must be liberated. 
and you go into a lot of depth about that and you're you're not just discrediting the idea of reconciliation or personal forgiveness but you're kind of um sure expanding that say a little bit more about it man yeah yeah i mean i think there's uh you know a distinction right um there have been many times as a as a black man um who's been in ministry for you know, a number of years, I've been invited to the conversation, right? The the racial reconciliation conversations. And, you know, if in all honesty, it's it's about personal or interpersonal efforts, right? Uh, To build like sort of, you know, a sense of togetherness. Uh, It's about um, forgiveness, uh, building relationships across racial lines. Um, But where it stops, Shane, it stops there, right? And many white Christians think that racial reconciliation is it. (laughs) It's the end all, right? Uh, As long as we're forgiven uh, and we are like operating in harmony and we're together, then we're doing uh, this world some good. And while that is true, Shane, it leaves out uh, the racial justice issues that goes beyond personal relationships um, and focuses more on addressing some of the systemic and structural aspects of racism that are still upheld to this day. You know, racial justice seeks to rectify, you know, unequal distribution of power, uh, rectify, uh, you know, food deserts in communities that are mostly black and brown, rectify environmental racism, rectify what you stand for, right? (laughs) That the abolishment of using weaponry to commit uh, mass crimes of shootings, et cetera, you know, and it it deals more with uh, the systems of oppression and it challenges uh, these institutional things that are upheld uh, because of white supremacy. And you can't forgive yourself out of that. You just can't. You can't just have another, you know, say, you know, we're going to come together. We're going to pray. We're going to forgive. We also have to be about doing the work to stop and end some of these things that have been structurally set up um, that continues to perpetuate the cycles and the systems of oppression. Yeah. And just as as we think of personal salvation, there's also social transformation. Right. And and you, you pull on Dr. Yes. King so much in this because Dr. King knew that. Right. He, he knew that, like um, he spoke so poignantly that um, a law can't make someone love me, but it can make it harder for them to kill me. <laughs> and we need laws to change. <laughs> but no, no, like you can't legislate love. You can't outlaw racism no, you or can't. hatred. And that's why that's we right. need both of those, right? We need the Holy Spirit, that's, hallelujah. That's, and we need yes. we need social transformation, yes. right? We need our laws to be more we, just. We, we need to address the history, yes. the pain of our past. So go ahead, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we do need, we need both. And it has to be grounded in love. Right. Um, As a matter of fact, love should move you uh, to want to stand in solidarity. That's what I'm arguing throughout my whole book uh, to open up uh, your your world to include uh, everyone around you. Uh, It's it's about creating this beloved community. It's about understanding that uh, the world is our address. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree. The other thing, too, is. We also have to understand that it's a matter of the heart. Um, I know you uh, uh, mentioned about the difference between de jure law or de jure law mm-hmm. and de facto discrimination. Um, you know, an example of this is, 
you know, the du jour law of redlining was abolished, right, uh, with the Fair Housing Act. But it's still like being practiced in many communities. It's just not under the auspice of this this actual law. But just because the law was removed does not mean that it took away the discriminatory practices and behaviors out of the hearts and minds of people. And I think what you're suggesting is that we do need that type of heart change. And it does have to uh, start with uh, personal salvation and commitment. And you have to be grounded in love to even want to stand in solidarity with those who you consider your neighbor. Yeah, hallelujah. And, and you know, you um, you talk a lot about proximity, and that's something that I write a lot about, something Brian Stevenson talks a lot about, being near to those who have been most impacted by injustice, those who have experienced homelessness, those who uh, have been wrongfully convicted or even, you know, rightfully convicted right now, sit on death row, wondering if, if their life is, is going to be spared. Um, and uh, but there's also, you know, a healthy critique of proximity without authentic equality and relationship. And Dante Stewart, somebody, Howard Thurman wrote about that, right? It's not enough just to be near each other or even to like uh, rub shoulders. I mean, like even in the middle of um, some of the worst eras of overt racism and lynching and Jim Crow, like white folks and black folks were living in the same towns and stuff, but they didn't have this sense of uh, respect and equality. And I think that's uh, that's something you do a really great job at naming um, and I wanted you to say a little bit more about you. You've got this real, you know, robust critique of uh, color blindness, which you you bump into in a lot of white circles. Like, uh, and you've you've uh, uh, been in a lot of different circles, predominantly black circles, and also predominantly white circles, multicultural circles. But this idea that we just need to move on, we don't need to see color, we need to be post race, um, and uh, uh, the problem is we can't move too fast, right? Our, our systems and structures, structures uh, are still very much aware of color, uh, and our past is very much uh, discriminating based on color. So um, you want to say a little bit more about that? Because that seems like one of those um, ways that we uh, can create hostile environments without recognizing it, especially in a lot of predominantly white circles, right? Yeah, and even quote Dr. King, you know, <laughs> as we do it. Yeah, I mean, brother, I can't, um, I can't begin to even count the number of times when I've been in white spaces, both Christian and non-Christian, and I've heard um, white people say to me, "I don't see color," and I've sat there with all of the emotions that uh, my grandfather carried mm. uh, in the conversations we've had. I've sat there with all of the emotions that my grandmother carried in the conversations that we had. And I, I'm talking about like grandparents who are still alive. And so um, I'll never forget this one ins instance where uh, our, our organization was invited to be a part of like this huge corporate event. It was predominantly uh, white and I was the only black leader uh, that's leading the organization that's there, right? And afterwards, uh, there was a group of white men standing around. Uh, one of them actually said that they didn't see color, right, uh, to me. And they were happy that I was there, right? And so they're packing up these resources. And uh, this middle-aged white woman walks over to me, right, and 
she asked me uh, where were the trash bags because she thought I was the janitor. Mm, mm, sweet Lord Jesus. A lady, a lady runs over, notices this happening, explains to her, like, you know, I was an organization being represented, et cetera. And uh, the lady sheds tears, apologizes, walks over to a corner and just kind of like uh, processes what happens. Mm. Color blindness to me uh, is an intentional, um, it's, it's a willful ignorance, right? Uh, you know, where you willfully ignore the fact that someone of color, a black person, a brown person um, is, you know, systematically discriminated against. And when you say you don't see color, what I hear is you don't see me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't see what my grandparents went through. You don't see uh, some of the systemic things that are, are still plaguing black and brown communities. You don't see the impoverishment. You don't see the, the uh, uh, homelessness. You don't see the ways in which black people are still fright, fighting to not only be equal, but to have equity and to have this sense of belonging. And so colorblindness to me is, man, it's a willful ignorance where you um, willfully ignore how skin color actually plays a role in some of the things that happen uh, to discriminate against black people. Yeah, it's, it's such a good word. And um, I've often built on a lot of other scholarship when it comes to the contrast between the Tower of Babel story and Pentecost, you know, <laughs> where it was uh, the Tower of Babel was monoculture, one language, one people impressed by themselves. And God scatters them and creates culture and language. And then in Pentecost, there's this really brilliant diversity and the unity. So it's, you know, unity is not about uniformity. It's, it's, you know, oneness isn't about sameness, but you think of a symphony, right? It's beautiful because it's diverse. And I even think of this, you know, every person having a unique fingerprint and DNA and even Pride Month when people are remembering the colors, you know, we're remembering that God is an artist and that's a beautiful thing. So, um, Yes. Where your yeah, your work on that, man. Um so we we we're looking at I mean it's it's important. Go ahead, man. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It's 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 important. Um yeah. you know if you know I, you know I I just I hope that white Christians who may hear this understand that when they are saying they, they love their neighbor. Um, that is not a monolithic statement. Mm -hmm. It's not a, you know, a single focus statement where like, I, I love my neighbor in passing. No, I love my neighbor and the, mm -hmm. their origins. I love my neighbor and their historical shaping. I, I love my neighbor and their social location. I love my neighbor and all of the uh, experiences, existential experiences that informs who they are. But not only that, I'm loving the neighborhood where the neighbor emerges from, mm. right? Yeah, right? And it's going a little bit deeper. I'm understanding uh, that love for neighborhood to understand how it's been in, it historically impacted. I'm understanding uh, uh, the challenges that the neighborhood faces. And because I'm proximate to my neighbor, that causes me to want to lament with my neighbor, learn from my neighbor, stand in solidarity with my neighbor, use my yeah. voice to advocate with my neighbor. And it's just that level of of depth that we we need when we say that we're following Jesus, right? Yeah. 
If one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. If one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. And uh, that's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think of uh, that's why it's so important to be able to be particular about God's uh, love and God giving special honor to the, the parts of our family that have been dishonored. And I think that's also why it's so important to be able to say black lives matter because history has said black lives don't matter, at least not as much as white folks. And so, you know, the Dred Scott case to the three fifths compromise, I mean, all through it, we got this idea that some, <laughs> ma- some lives matter more than others. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful to be able to say, uh, that black lives matter. And you can't say all lives matter until you really believe in the specificity of God's love. So let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, it's almost July 4th, man. And um, <laughs> we got uh, uh, flags waving um, and you've got this beautiful part. Um, I mean, it, it's heavy. And I, you know, I, I just wrote this book, um, Rethinking Life, where I've been doing some of the hard work of telling the true story of America, not just the mythology of America. I talk about Abraham Lincoln, you know, and some of the Christopher Columbus, these people we've had holidays after. But you um you bring this whole thing. I mean, you you kind of uh paint this picture in a in a powerful way that 40 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. Uh, but you also talk about the national anthem and um the, the oh yeah, Francis Scott Key. Yeah, man, get into it. So I'll just read this part that you quote um uh from the National Museum of um, American History. And this is Francis Scott Key who wrote the dec- uh, the uh, national anthem. And it says when he wrote that poem, um that would in 1931 become the national anthem and proclaim our nation, the land of the free, like Jefferson, uh, Key not only profited from slaves, he harbored racist conceptions of American citizenship and human potential. Africans in America, he said, were, and this is a quote, a distinct and inferior race of people, which all experience proves to be the greatest evil that afflicts a community. I mean, it makes me sick at my stomach, you know, as I I read those words of Francis Scott Key. Uh, And so you want to talk a little bit more about uh, as we we think towards the 4th of July, how we can have an appropriate uh, (laughs) orientation to America, especially as, you know, folks who have a deeper allegiance to Christ than to America. Not everybody listening is a Christian, maybe, but I think those of us who are, that that should reshape things. And especially our history of white supremacy should shape uh, some of how we even hear the national anthem, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you go back and do, you know, some context to the entirety of what was written. I mean, there's a third verse that is oftentimes Mm. omitted that says no refuge could save the hurling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Mm. Who is key talking about in that verse? He's talking about enslaved Africans. He's talking about uh, people who were uh, forced on ships who lost their lives during the Middle Passage, forced to come here against their will, you know, made to be property. He's viewing uh, Africans who were enslaved through this lens. And this is 
the context of our national anthem. Mm. So when black people saw Colin kneeling uh, in protest to uh, pro- police brutality, and we saw all of the backlash and the, you know, the attacks and, you know, trying to disgrace him. And uh, when he was trying to make this this statement that we need to pay a- attention to the injustices that were done, you know, what, let me ask you, Shane, what did white Christian nationalists do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did they do? They attacked verbally. Uh, they use, yeah. uh, you know, a reframing. Uh, they said that, you know, he was ungrateful, uh, that he stood against, uh, you know, America, right? All of these types of... I mean, now you of, got the whole um, bumper stickers uh, and T-shirts and the yeah, whole movement, yeah, you know, yeah, stand, all, stand all this, for the flag, all for this the movement. cross. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, we need to push back against this. Uh, you, you made a statement in your notes. You said that you didn't believe that we should sing the national anthem. Let yeah. me ask you why. Well, for, for me, nationalism um, and patriotism even is uh, it, it shrinks our love rather than expanding it. So, I mean, Jesus is just so radical in how he redefines family. I mean, and literally we've made it cliche, but in the evangelical world, we talk about being born again. And that means, you know, I mean, even Jesus said it. I mean, it couldn't be more clear when his actual mother, biological mother and brothers come and they say, hey, your family's here. Jesus says, who's my family? Who are my mother and brothers? It's bigger than that, y'all. Like, uh, and so that's, you know, how I think of it is Mother Teresa said, yes. sometimes the circle we've drawn around our family is just too small. And that's why Jesus's words for family are radical. You've got to, you've got to, uh, love bigger than your own biological family. You've got to love bigger than your own nationality. I mean, a love for our own people's that's right. not a bad thing, but like we've got an allegiance that's bigger than nationalism. And, and I think that's, that's the real danger, right? Is we begin to think it matters more if someone here inside our border is hurting than on the other side of a wall or the border. And that's the, I think that's a theological heresy. Yes. There's a quote. We're getting into uh, it tonight, y'all. We're getting into it tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a quote. Um, so this is from Dr. King uh, in this book, where do, where do we go from here? He says, we've inherited a large house, a great world house, in which we have to live together, Black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, uh, who, because we can never again live apart, must somehow uh, learn to live with each other in peace, mm-hmm. right? Yes. He's talking about uh, this idea of interconnectedness, interdependentness. Uh, yes. He's talking about what you're saying, that we should have this, this love that is greater uh, than division, greater than nationality, greater than um, uh, this 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 ideology that seeks to uphold uh, that some are accepted while others are ex- excluded. That's this right. this ideology that you know accepts that some belong and others should be marginalized. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the type of love that we should ground ourselves in. And then he goes on to say that we need to have a love greater than our tribe, than mm-hmm. than our creed, yes. than our than our ideologies that seeks to divide us. Yeah, 
that's that's king at his best. Yeah. You know, the Bible doesn't say God so loved America, but God so loved the world, y'all. God so loved the world. The world. And uh, so I'll, I'll say this. I don't know if you got an idea for the 4th of July, but I'd say this uh, is just a few years ago, y'all, maybe even last year. We, we've done it a couple of times. We did the entire reading of Frederick Douglass's speech, iconic speech, uh, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. And so you can you can listen to that if you just want to sit back and listen. Like we each took a paragraph and we read the whole thing in its entirety. But uh, at least read that speech. I think that would be a powerful way to uh, think about the Fourth of July this year, maybe even annually, to honor him and his words. Uh, but um, I got two questions left. You got anything else to say about that, though, man? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'll just say one more thing too. In Philly, it's ironic that yeah. fireworks are illegal because people think they're dangerous, but AK 47s and AR 15s are still legal. So we got some things we're working wow. on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. Wow. You got any yeah, other, I mean, things that you want to share on? Uh, I got two more questions. One of them's from somebody on the web, but I don't, I don't want to cut you off, man. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I, I do with my children, um, I definitely read uh, Frederick Douglass uh, with them. But one of the things that we have we have done is just like uh, we find actual facts about black history. We discuss them. We talk about Fourth uh, of July through the lens of those who were enslaved. Uh, because you do know <laughs> that uh, Africans were still ens enslaved. I mean, we just celebrated Juneteenth. Uh, we even discussed the depths of that. Uh, we discussed, um, you know, what the ratification meant a few years later that put that clause in there that still allots for enslavement of those who found themselves in the uh, uh, the prison system. And so, you know, I just try to talk to them about uh, like a lot of historical things, but greater than that, I try to like celebrate and just have joy just with my family. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because black joy is a form of resistance against any type of oppressive system. I think um, that has been something that has been a saving grace uh, for me and my faith. Right. Knowing that God loves me, loves our history, loves everything about my family, and we get a chance to celebrate that in a way that's really healthy, that centers uh, our narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the last things I wanted to hear from you and uh, was, was I think we're all uh, have to be very intentional, as Brian Stevenson says, to, to protect our joy. Right. And uh, as that old uh, song goes, this joy that I have, uh, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. So we can't let. This, the the you know principalities and powers rob us of our joy, um, but that's a discipline, you know. And I know I know some of the things that I do, but I'd love to hear some of the sort of holy habits or spiritual disciplines you have for protecting your joy uh, and keeping your hope alive. Um, you got any any thoughts on that as we sort of wrap up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do a number of things. Um, I, I do readings uh, with my family. Sometimes we get together and we read, you know, things and we discuss what they mean to us. Even our, our children uh, sometimes will bring things, even if they're from a children's book. Um, we discuss them at greater depth. 
Uh, we love to laugh and, and do fun activities like fishing and uh, travel and exercise. Um, but, you know, our family, um, we love to worship together. Sometimes we sit in silence and we listen to worship music and we just allow uh, the worship of God um, within itself, you know, give us that inspiration and that, and that feeling that we, we need to be, um, to be whole, to feel whole. Mm. Um, and then there are times, man, where we just go and connect with community members, right? And when I say community members, I'm talking about our friends and community who are just overlooked, man. Like, you know, I think it's very spiritual to be in proximity and to listen to the stories of people, um, the people that society may say uh, are undeserving or unworthy uh, mm -hmm. to us. You know, conversations with our community members has has given us inspiration. You know, we get a chance to weep with people, to laugh with people, to um, dream with people, right? Uh, because yeah. uh, suffering is can be transitional. It, it doesn't have to be something that defines a person's entire life, right? Yeah. And so, you know, just being in close proximity to community members um, and seeing faces um, is a beautiful a uh, way to engage in something that is uplifting for us personally. I, th I think it's su su such a good word, even in the movement too, like uh, around all of these different intersecting, interlocking injustices, uh, we need that joy. And um, it's every movement that's changed the world has had joy and celebration and art and music uh, at the heart of it. And I was even thinking of our friends down there in Atlanta. I don't. I don't know if you are a part of all this, but this. This is. I might show my age a little bit, man. We just. We're getting ready to celebrate 25 years in Philly of uh, the community. And in the early days, there were folks in Atlanta down there that uh, a lot of folks on the street were getting written up uh, for using the restroom uh, in public, and um, they would even get charged with sex offenses, right? Because they couldn't find a toilet, and so there was a a whole movement there called P for free with dignity. They carried toilets and laid them at city hall and said, we got to have some bathrooms up in here. You can't be locking up people if they, we don't have public restrooms. So, but that joy, man, we got to keep it alive. And uh, I want to give you the last word or invite you, you know, if you want to, send us out with a prayer benediction or any last words, man, this, this hour has been a gift. And um, thanks for listening in everybody. If you don't have the book yet, uh, grab it. And, and uh, Dr. Lester's written other books too, but this is the new one, all God's children, how confronted bar confronting buried history can build racial solidarity. So uh, grab this, hand it out. This is a gift to the, church my brother and a gift to the world uh just like you are so send us out man you got got any closing words or benediction or anything you know what i've been thinking a lot about lately that it's okay to contribute whatever you have and the reason why shane is because we live in a digital age at any given moment you can pick up a cell phone and be bombarded with all sorts of injustices all around the world, all at once. And sometimes that uh, creates some, some sort of like stuckness, right? Or paralyzation. What can I contribute is the question that people wrestle with. How can I 
be a part of seeing something change. When what I found out is um, that any piece, no matter how big or small, uh, it's all about contributing what you have to the to collective uh, fabric of social change, um, to the collective fabric of the love of God and what God is doing yet still. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I would say if you're in a place right now and you don't know where to start, what to start with, or you've been exhausted uh, by what you have been doing, you know, pause, breathe, and then look at what you have before you and see it as something as, you know, special to contribute to um, what God is doing in the earth. Because what you give and what I give and what Shane gives and what everybody else gives has the potential to create some type of change. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, brother. What a what a gift this hour has been. And y'all uh, follow. Tell folks how they can follow you, uh, Terrence, on socials and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, you can follow me at I'm Terrence Lester. That's I M T E R E N C E L E S T R. Shane, it's been a, a pleasure, man. I, yeah, I'm uh, deeply inspired by you, and uh, I thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, brother. We'll keep in touch. We'll see more of you. I hope to see you soon. And uh, thanks everybody for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.